All right, uh, you have a Bible? Open it up to uh, Psalm chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, the ushers are coming down, and if you'd lift your hand up, they will make sure that you get one from us. Psalm chapter 16. got back from vacation last week, uh, Saturday. First time I've ever had two weeks vacation in a row in my life. And I've learned this about myself. I have the gift of rest. So it's going to take me, it's going to take me a couple of weeks to even know where I am or what I'm thinking. So if something sounds really wrong in this sermon, just write it up to rest. I, I totally vegetate at rest. We went to Coronado one week and Sedona the next and had a great time. And I know this, you guys provide for us to do stuff like that. So me and my family, we say thank you. Thank you for the time off and, and uh, the rest that we got. So anyway, um, we started a series a couple of weeks ago called the four G's. You can call it the God is series, whatever you want to define it. And you've probably heard this quote several times in the last couple of weeks, and I'm going to repeat it again today. It's a quote by Tozer that says, what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Let me say that again. What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And the reason why, and we're going to make that crystal today, is because what you think about God, um, how you feel he is, is how you respond to him, correct? That's how you behave. So let me give you a scenario of different types of ways we respond to God. Some people treat God like he's this faceless, um, distant, nameless force, right? He's energy. These people are in Sedona right now because I was there. <laughs> he, he's nothing more than just a vibe, okay? And some people treat God like that, like he's just this good energy, and that's, that's how we relate to him. Some people treat God like he's the on-star God. That somewhere in your Bible, in the back, there's a button, and you hit it when you want an answer, and then once you get your answer or your help, you move on with your life, and he sits off waiting for you to come again sometime. Some people treat him that way. Some people treat him like the grandpa God. You know, I had a grandpa who didn't talk a lot, but he was a gracious guy, and his pocket always had like a nickel in it for me, you know, and some people treat God like he's got pockets full of candy. He doesn't move that fast anymore, and he's not that sharp anymore, but he's always nice. That's God. He's just a gracious older gentleman uh, willing to bless. Some people treat God like he's the scorekeeper God, that he's got thousands and thousands of people out there taking notes on your life, and he's keeping score, and you're not measuring up. Uh, Some people treat him like the doomsday God. This God is hellfire all the time, 24-7, just waiting for the perfect opportunity to smash you. And uh, some people have that fear of God that he's into that kind of thing. Some people treat God like he's the stained glass God. You know, he only shows up on Sunday at 10 o'clock, 10.30 in the chapel. That's where my God shows up. And when I'm done, he stays there and I go do my thing and he'll be there when I get back, right? Some people treat God like he's that kind of, that kind of deity. Some, some folks treat him like the patriot God. This is a God who bleeds red, white, and blue and votes Republican. <laughs> and this would not be true, but some people really think that it's all about, you know, patriotism and, and things like that. Some people treat God like he's the politically correct God, like he really doesn't want to offend anyone. He's kind of like the ultimate salad bar. You can take or leave whatever you want of this God. He's not really that picky or that offended by anything. You see what I'm saying? So however you view God, 
really dictates how you relate to God. And if your God is a terrorizing God who wants to crush you, then you're, you're jumping in step. If this God is a God who's disinterested in your details and sin, then you probably got a bunch of that in your life too. You see, they're all, they're all interconnected. So for the past couple of weeks, we, we've been in this series called Forgeries, taking basically a look at the character of God in the gospel that, that deals with our fears, our struggles, our insecurities, our addictions, and our sin. If, if we can define God appropriately, then it confronts all those things. It dictates how we behave and what we respond to and, and, and what we confess. And so let me go go through the titles of the, the messages we've given you so far. God is great, so you don't have to be in control. And, and control is a mechanism sinners who are afraid use to manage their life. God is glorious, we saw last week, so you don't have to fear others. Today we're going to look at God is good, so you don't have to look elsewhere. And then finally, next week we're going to look at God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. Now, in those statements of who God is as great, glorious, good, and gracious, they say volumes about how sinners respond. Amen? Don't they? Come on, don't they? Yes, they do. So today, this idea of his goodness dictating that we don't have to perceive uh, or get our satisfaction anywhere else is key in our Christian life. So let me ask you this question as we start. What are you looking for? What are you looking for? See, I think I can give you one simple answer, and it applies to not just people sitting in a church pew. It applies to every person who's walking and has walked on the face of the earth. The one thing everybody's looking for is happiness. Doesn't matter who you are or where your particular position in life is, you're looking for happiness and joy. Blaise Pascal said this, He's a philosopher, a mathematician, an inventor from the 1600s. He said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attending with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. People are looking for happiness. In other words, let me just put it in our vernacular. You always do what you want to do, and what you want to do is be happy. That's, that's how we behave. We pursue joy because God made us that way. Why, why did you have what you had for breakfast this morning? A little weird, but because you wanted to be happy. Why, why do you go on vacation like I did? Be happy. Why do you work out? Why, why don't you work out? <laughs> to be happy. Why, why do you work so hard? Why do you save a bunch of money? Why? Why are you here this morning? One answer. To be happy. You always do what you want to do, and what you want to do is be happy, and so therefore you pursue whatever makes you happy. When I was a kid, I grew up in the Southwest. My dad was a a pastor, but I was into cowboy movies. Like, you know, like, I don't know if I was strange. This might be an old generation, but I always fantasized being a cowboy. I wanted to be a cowboy. I wanted to ride a horse and punch a cow, whatever that is. I wanted to do that. Um, I've got a friend that goes here, Steve Johnston. He has a ranch up in Sunflower. 
And so about a month ago, he said, hey, would you want to come out and work with me one day? And I said, absolutely, I want that. But I didn't prepare well, so I took no hat. I wore a short sleeve shirt, and it was like 400 degrees outside. So we got on a He picked me up at like 3.15. We drove up to Payson, and I got on a horse at about 5.45, and I got off in the afternoon at, at 2.30. And if you've ever been up there, it's everything's this or this, however you ride, you know. Um, it was a lot of sunshine and a lot of horse riding. And a couple of times I'm pinching myself. This is awesome. This is just awesome. Why did, I, why did I go? And we didn't eat all day. And there was this rusty canteen of water. Why would I do something like that? Because I wanted to be happy. Right? As simple as it is. You do what you do because you want to be happy. So, so the greatest quest in our life that God has authored is this quest for joy and satisfaction and happiness. God invented it. So where, where do you find it? Clearly, we look for it. Where do we find it? People look everywhere. And it has, a lot of times, it doesn't matter whether you're a believer or not. Some people look to good things. Some people look to bad things, right? Some people look to helpful things. Some people look to destructive things. Uh, behaviors. First John, John writes about the things we're not supposed to love, and the list that he creates is this list of all these pursuits of joy and happiness apart from God. You know, it's, it's the desires of the flesh, it's the desires of the eyes, and it's the, the pride of life. All these things that offer some kind of satisfaction and joy apart from Jesus. Here's, here's what the writer says, you're not supposed to love that stuff because it can't deliver. So we have this ultimate pursuit in our life. We look for happiness everywhere. Sometimes it's relationships. Sometimes we put so much burden on people to make us happy, and all they can do is fail us. Fair? They can let us down. We have a good day and then a bad week. Sometimes we expect our, our income, our money to provide happiness because if I get there, if I just get this much, if I have that particular position, then I'll be good to go. Some of us, some of us produce, pursue acceptance. We want others to approve us. I mean, I don't know if I used this illustration last time. I don't know if it works, but do you guys know who Todd Marinovich is? Those of you guys who are football guys? So this is back, I don't know, a decade and a half, two decades ago. Todd Marinovich was born into a home of a physical trainer, and his dad thought that Todd should be a quarterback from birth. So at 15 days old, he was stretching his hamstrings and working his rotator cuffs. <laughs> His whole life, he didn't have any sugar, he had no junk food, and all he did was ever work out. And in his process of becoming a football player, he was a quarterback, he would play in high school and junior high, and his dad would always say this, this statement, well, it's not the New York Giants, to kind of press him to be better and to achieve more. And, and he eventually got, you know, a, a Division I scholarship at USC. And when you're the quarterback for USC, that's a pretty big deal. And, and uh, his dad would always say, well, yeah, but you haven't played the New York Giants. He gets drafted in the first round, and uh, eventually he plays the New York Giants. And uh, his dad couldn't say that anymore. And after the game, his dad said, you know, Todd, I I'm, I'm proud of you. And Todd writes in his own biography that I quit that day because all I needed was my dad to say I'm proud of you because he had spent his whole, day shape his whole life shaping him into a quarterback. Some people choose to please others to such a high degree, right, that their version of happiness is just to have you say I'm proud of, proud of me. Some people choose addictions, gory, gory things, sins and, and failures. Um, some people choose excitements. 
we could say it our modern way, sex, drugs, and rock and roll is the version of how to pursue joy and happiness on our own. And uh, part, of, part of that, it shows up in just different weird ways. Um, I was at Sedona with my family. They brought their girlfriends, and we, we had about nine of us up there. And I don't know if, I've never been to Slide Rock before. You've ever been to Slide Rock? Well, there's a bridge that kind of, I don't know what road that is either. There's a bridge uh, on the way to Slide Rock. The, the bridge, right under the bridge, about 15 feet under the bridge, there's a cliff that overlooks the water. It's about 50 feet up. Well, as soon as we get to Slide Rock, guess where my guys want to go? They want to go to the cliff. They want to jump off. And, and back in my day, that would not have been an issue. For some reason, at my age now, I look at a thing like that and go, oh, that's stupid. I'd never do that. So I'm on the other side of the water looking at these people up at the top of this bluff going, that is so stupid. That is so stupid. And the only reason they threw themselves off that crazy thing was to be happy. They stood there for a half an hour, everything's shaking and stuff locking up, and they jumped because they wanted to be happy. Now, there are versions of jumping off a cliff in our own lives that, that represents how extreme we'll go to find joy. But everybody's got it. And there's one reason for it, is because God designed us to find it. He made us to have a desire and a hunger for joy and happiness. He also designed us to find it only in him. So we're going to talk this morning about the kind of the disappointment of chasing after things that can't deliver and ultimately finding our happiness and joy in a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Again, Pascal uh, said this, regarding that desire for happiness and joy found only in God, he says, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God, the creator made known through Jesus. Do you believe that? Let me prove it to you. Psalm 16, you there in your Bibles? Uh, David, the, the man after God's own heart, here's a guy who knew what worship was, and he loved God, and his reputation said that. In spite of his sin, in spite of moments of uh, lack of clarity when he pursued other joys and happiness, at least that's what God says about David. He writes uh, in chapter 16 this idea of God being the good. Look at verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. In other words, there's only one good thing. Nothing else competes to the Lord. David's saying, you're it. Out of all the things in my life, you're king. Are you kidding me? You have privilege. You have freedom. You have money. You have success. There's only one good thing, David, and it's who? It's the Lord. He was clear about that. But he writes this thing, and it's, it's, it's true to the human condition and the sinful nature of our flesh. But look at verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. In other words, false gods and idols, they multiply your pain. Everybody struggles with that. Isn't that true? Come on, isn't that true? That when you chase after things that can't deliver at that level of joy and happiness, they always bring suffering. They always bring pain. Christopher Wright said, false gods never fail to fail. <laughs> C.S. Lewis said, idols always break the heart of their worshipers because they can't deliver. And you might never call your issue, your side issue, a false god. But God would. Because whenever you go to put your faith or trust to get joy and happiness out of something, it's something in the way of God. Because he alone, what David said in verse 2, he alone is good. There is no other. And so whenever you pour that kind of affection at anything else, it's going to break your heart. 
That's what, that's what God designed it to do. Ha- haven't you had your heart broken? Like you, you go, I- I'm, I'm working my life. There's this deal I gotta get. I, got, I get this deal, then I'm pretty much set. Then I really don't have to worry about the future. And then the deal doesn't happen. Ever been disappointed about something like that? Everybody has. Have you ever um, lost that dream job? And now you're stressing doing things you don't like. Chasing happiness, enjoy something else. Sure, yeah. The marriage that failed, the parents that didn't stay together, the boyfriend or the girlfriend that promised to love you, but they didn't love you, they were just taking from you. That 401k that's now a 4.2b or whatever it is, it's shrunk so small, it doesn't have anything left for you, and now you know, I gotta work till I'm 75 or whatever. And all of your little aspirations, however you laid out your life, clearly isn't happening like you want it. I mean, there's a, this is funny to me. There's probably not a week that goes by that somebody here doesn't remind me of my cruise. Do you remember the story of my cruise? I went on a cruise to Mexico with my family. Nobody remembers. Okay. Well, then, it, then, it, then it's probably one guy just pestering me. Um, I thought I'd go on a cruise with my wife. I thought it'd be really cool. I've never done anything like that that's extravagant. I thought she'd think I was awesome. And, and uh, we'd have a great time. It was horrible. Every bit of it was horrible, beginning, all the way to the end, and in the middle. It was all bad. And, and I get teased about that now. You should go on a cruise. You should go on a cruise. But it's classic. I, I put my expectations here. It delivered here. I'm disappointed. Isn't that just like everything else in our life? Isn't that like what you chase after? You put the expectations here, and it gets delivered here, and that joy and happiness thing just kind of dissipates, doesn't it? It goes away. It's hard, it's hard to... It's hard to manage. There's a reason why we get disappointed in everything. is because we are not designed to be ultimately satisfied in anything but him. Do you believe that? That's how he made us. God is our joy. Look at verse 8 through 11 of Psalm 16. Again, David says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. Now, I want you to notice the the positive emotional words that David uses to describe his proximity to the Lord. So he says, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David uses these words. Gladness, rest, joy, and pleasure. Gladness for the heart, rest for the body and the flesh. We don't just strive anymore. There is a joy and pleasure in his presence, in the relationship we have with him. There's a reason for that. Jesus talks about it in in the Gospels when he talks about the ultimate treasure. And church, you already know this. You already know the answer, and that's part of the dilemma of teaching. I'm not going to tell you something you don't already know, but it's difficult to live it. God, through Christ, is the prize. He's the treasure. I don't know how you came to Christ. I had a conversation with somebody just last hour after the service, and we're having conversations about 40 years of church and proximity to faith or whatever. And it was, it was clear to me that the simple understanding of the work of Christ for a sinner like us was, was not fully understood. And so the rest of it, the conversation was about hard work. 
and fear and disappointment and sadness and how do I know and doubts and struggles, right? That, that's the process of, of sinners who we lose our focus on Jesus being the point and the treasure of the gospel. You know, sometimes you can hear this, and it's, and it's a truth, but it's twisted. The truth is that we escape the judgment and wrath of God, and we spend eternity with him. That's the truth. And sometimes we as Christians mistake it and say, that's the point. That's the, that's the treasure. I don't have to suffer the condemnation of God for my sin. Out of jail free. It's a side point. Here's the big point. You get God. You know that separation that happened in the garden that we all got condemned to because of our ancestors? They sinned and sin separated us from a relationship and intimacy with God. Jesus bridged the gap. We get God. He made us to know him and walk with him and love him and hear from him and enjoy him and experience him. And sin clouds everything. So I don't know where you are in the perspective of Jesus and what Jesus does for you. There are lots of things Jesus does, but the preeminent thing Jesus does, he restores the brokenness between God the Father and sinful man. And now we walk in fellowship. The prize, the treasure that Jesus talked about in Matthew is Jesus. Jesus used that parable there's a man who's walking around in a field. He finds a treasure and he buries it real quick. And in joy, the text says, in joy, he goes away and sells everything to get the treasure. When it comes to Jesus, everything else pales by comparison. Jesus says, you, you give me everything and I'll give you more than you dreamed of. You, you give me your sin, clearly you don't want that, but you give me your idols and your false hopes and your disappointing joys and, and failures in life, and I will give you satisfaction that will be greater than the weakest moment in your life. You can be in the midst of a cancer struggle and you will find joy. You can't get that any other way. The only way to find joy and happiness apart from Jesus is to have everything go perfect and sin won't let it happen. So, God is our ultimate joy. David uses the word gladness for the heart, rest for the soul or for the body, joy and pleasure in his presence. He is the treasure. God is the true satisfaction. I would love to change some language in our talk today. I would love if we just started talking this way. Is God good, church? Is God good? Okay, that's true. Can we change it, though? God is better. Can you say that? Is God better? Yeah, because in the midst of it, it's not a hard question to answer. Is he good? Of course he's good. The struggle is when you're sitting there in the midst of front of your sin or your choices or your idols or your other joys and going, is he really better than that? Because the only reason we invest in him is because at that moment we think they're better than he is, don't we? We're buying a lie. It's not about what you believe. I know you can answer the test. It's in the moment by moment living it out. Is he better than fear? Is he better than control? Is he better than anger? Is he better than money at a pursuit that you can't keep up? Is he better than relationships and sex and addictions? Is he, is he better than lies and deception? Is he better than living the way you think people want you to live? Is he better Church, do you believe he's better? 
Because if he's not better, you'll keep striving and you'll keep working and you'll keep struggling the suffering of knowing that it can't deliver. Because he's good, he's better. He's always better. We need to embrace that terminology. God is the source of all joy. Every longing in us is a longing for God. Did you hear that? Every longing in us is a longing for God. G.K. Chesterton said this. I love this quote. The young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. Everything we do is wanting something to get us close, even if it's a mirage to what God offers. You don't do it unless that's what you're chasing for. So how do you get joy? Look at verse 11 of chapter 16. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. The path of life, here's it's real simple. It's Jesus. Trust in Jesus. He said himself in John 14, of himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. Can I paraphrase a little bit? No one finds joy apart from me. No one finds happiness apart from me. No one finds contentment apart from me. No one finds the ultimate satisfaction apart from me. That's Jesus offering and being the exclusive way, truth, and life. He's not saying he's an option. He's not saying he's one of the many. He's exclusive. He's saying he's the only. That's why David writes in the first beginning of this chapter, there's only one good thing, and it's you. And everything else is an idol. Everything else breaks my heart. And I know it because I've tried it. Hasn't David tried it? Didn't David try a couple of options? And it's heartbroken. And every sinner in this place, we know what it's like to trust something or pursue something to have it crush our hearts. But trust in Christ. Matthew chapter 7 Jesus says, He encourages us to enter through the narrow gate, right? Because there's another gate, it's a wide gate, and many people are on the wide gate, and it leads to destruction and death, because it's easy, because everybody's doing it. It's what comes natural, but Jesus suggests to go the, the narrow way. This, this one's more difficult, much more smaller, harder, but it leads to life, and few are on the narrow way. This life path that David found that brings him satisfaction and joy and contentment and happiness, it's Jesus. There's only one way. I don't know where you are today in your journey. I don't know if you'd say absolutely. You'd stand up right now and say, I love Jesus with all my heart, soul, and mind. Then you have already embraced this, and daily you embrace this truth. If you're in here going, I don't do anything, then you need to embrace this truth because everything else will break your heart. Everything else is a distant mirage of his reality. I want to read to you. You don't have to turn there, but in Acts chapter 13, Paul is preaching a sermon, and he quotes this very psalm that we're reading today, talking about freedom, and isn't that one of the things we chase after? Feeling free, not just not just personally, but consciously. Like we're free from all the tyranny of what, what the adversary and my failures tell me. I'm free. But this is what it says in verse 35. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, he's referring to Psalm 16, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. 
For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. He saw death. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption, who is Jesus. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed, listen very carefully, freed from everything from which you could not be freed by in the law. Jesus brings freedom where you could never be free any other way. There isn't religion. There isn't morality. There isn't money. There's not success. There's not acceptance. There's not achievement. There isn't anything on this planet that can equal freedom because freedom exclusively belongs to Jesus and those who trust him. Do you believe that? It's Christ and him alone, clearly according to, to Paul in this passage. So if that's true and you're shaking your heads a lot, why do we look elsewhere? Why do we waste so much time looking for happiness and joy in other places other than a relationship with him? I'm going to give you a couple reasons. And maybe we'll help you prepare for the attacks later, but here's a few. Because I think we think only in moments. Uh, we make the mistake of thinking pleasures of sin are real. Now, don't, don't mistake me. They feel like pleasures for a short time. But we think they're real. And that this, this thing that God offers, this joy and happiness that God offers is something really distant. Right? The gospel is for tomorrow, when I die, or when Jesus comes back, but it's not for my today. So it applies to tomorrow, for now, these pleasures are real. There's another reason why we look elsewhere. Because every joy we experience is a shadow of the source of all joy. The joy we experience is a shadow of the source of all joy. You know, the pleasures that, that we experience, these temporal ones, these ones that are, compete with the truth that God alone is satisfaction, they feel good for a short time, don't they? But they, they don't ever finish. You know, in my mind, I thought of when, when um, I, I read that or thought that this week was, you watch all these Pawns shows that are on TV now, Pawn stars, whatever. I, I'm demented, so cut me some slack. I love it when a guy comes into the pawn store thinking he has a treasure only to find out it's a fake. Because I'm looking in his face and he is so excited. He's got it. He, he's got it. The other day there was a guy who had this whale's tooth and on the whale's tooth was carved a, a, a map, a treasure map. He bought it in an antique store in England. It looked it, it was awesome. And they did all the study and it turned out to be Plastic. Everything in our life we chase other than Jesus is plastic. Does it look good for a time? Huh? Does it offer something good for a time? Can it deliver? Aren't you tired? Of, aren't you tired of chasing the artificial? Aren't you tired of, of seeing out in front of you this mirage that looks like life and peace and happiness and running to it only to drink the sand? Aren't you tired? Our God is good, and he's better. Amen? He's better. In Arizona, we have a great way to describe this. Um, when it's 8 bazillion degrees outside, and you try to see a mountain, or you try to see a distant picture, and the heat waves are interrupting the view, right? That's sort of what it's like to, to see joy and happiness to the perspective of flesh and want. 
You know, when I was riding that horse for Steve and it was like nine hours and my rear end was killing me and the heat, I didn't wear a hat and so the sun was just blistering my brain and I was enjoying it and I was hating it and I would look off at the mountain and the mountain was doing this. <laughs> you know? That's sort of what it's like with sin. Isn't it? It's joy. It's happiness. You can't see the picture. And it distorts your ability to look back at God and go, no, really, I understand. Even though I might not have my health, even though I don't necessarily know how I'm going to provide for my family because I've lost my job, I don't know those things. I know you, and I trust you. And in that is this contentment that supersedes fear, right? That's why Jesus suggests don't worry about your life, what you eat, what you drink, what you wear, because your heavenly Father knows you need them, right? So just trust him, and he's good, and by the way, he's better, God is better. Jeremiah 2, I love this passage. It's so condemning, but in the gospel, it's, it's encouraging. The prophet making an assessment of the people of God, which I suppose if he showed up here and kind of came back to life and would say something to the church, he could say this. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've hewed out for themselves cisterns broken cisterns that can hold no water. Yeah, I know you promised to be living water. I know you promised to be joy and happiness and peace and contentment. I know, I know, I know. But I'm over here building my own version, Jesus. And God looks at it and goes, it, it, can't, it can't do it. It's a broken cistern. You want it to hold living water, but it can't. I do. I give it away. There's another reason why we look elsewhere, God doesn't seem better, does he? I mean, sin looks like ice cream. He looks like broccoli. <laughs> I mean, sometimes that's how it feels. Like, wouldn't it be go so good? Wouldn't it taste good? Wouldn't it feel good? Everybody's doing it good. And God, you're the, you're the discipline. You're the hard work. You're the uphill. You're the think better, smarter. It's not true. It's just not true, but sometimes it feels that way. And sometimes we, we look elsewhere because we want instant gratification. We want it now. Sin never says, wait till later. It always says, do it now, doesn't it? Get angry now. Buy it now. Sell it now. Go get it now. Sleep with it now. Doesn't it always say that? It never says, hey, wait till later. Make sure you're making a wise decision about this sin. Because in our flesh, we want everything right now. One last thing, and I didn't invent this, smarter men than I did, but our, our desires are too weak. It's not that we have a broken um, desire. We don't fan it enough. Um, this, is, this is a quote by C.S. Lewis that Piper is using, and then he's going to jump into. So it's kind of a hybrid Piper-Lewis comment. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion was, has crept in from Kant or, or the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of, those, of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. Now, this is Piper's statement. That's it. 
The enemy of worship is not that our desire for pleasure is too strong, but too weak. We have settled for a home, a family, a few friends, a job, a television, an oven, an occasional night out, a yearly vacation, and perhaps even a new personal computer. We have accustomed ourselves to such meager, short-lived pleasures that our capacity for joy has shriveled. And so our worship has shriveled. Many can scarcely imagine what is meant by a holiday at the sea, worshiping the living God. It's not that you uh, are missing um, any joy. It's that you're not fanning it. The joy in the Lord, the satisfaction that he offers. So what do you do? I'm going to leave you with four things to kind of wrestle with as you leave here today. Here's one. Repent. Repent of your low desires. I know it sounds funny. If we're sitting here going, yeah, I probably should want him more. Well, here's, here's one of my most favorite. I got to believe it's God's most favorite word for the church. Now, I know there's lots of phrases we got to wrap our arms around. Jesus is my Savior and Lord. I love that. But one of the best words the church ever heard and should repeat a lot is repent. It's not a dirty word. It's a great word. The, the, the soul in me loves Christ because he authored the life in me. The flesh in me is at war with the, flesh, the soul in me. They're at war forever. Therefore, when I fail and I will fail, I repent. Sometimes a thousand times a day. It's the adversary and you who say, yeah, clean up your act first. Take some time. Don't rush right back to God because that will look like a hypocrite. Mm-mm. The fight's on, church. The fight's on. So whatever. Let's, let's say you're sitting here today and I go, I know what my idol is. I know what my joy and happiness is. It's this, it's this, it's this. And my guess, it's got some deep tentacles like wrapped around your soul. Here's what you do. Every day it pops its head up, repent. Don't quit. Don't have a good day after a sermon. Go home and fight the good fight and repent of those low desires. Say, God, I don't want you enough and I want you more. I've wanted the wrong things. I've looked for them to do the... What they can't deliver on, I want you. Just repent of those low desires. Here's another thing you can do. Identify your gods. Identify your idols and gods. Make a list of them. Where do you seek rest? Where do you seek joy? Write them down. And then take somebody with you. We're, we're kind of created to grow in the context of the one another, to pray for one another, encourage one another, conf- confess our sins to one another. The function of the body works that way. And if you go home and go, here's my list of things, they're my secrets, well, it's going to be harder. And if you hand it to a brother or a sister and say, hey, listen, here's what, I, here's what I chase after sometimes. Would you pray for me? Would you ask me about it? There's some strength in that. So not only do you repent of your low desires, identify your other gods, share it with somebody. Here's a third thing. Cultivate a taste for the goodness of God. I can tell you he's good, and you can shake your head and say amen as much as you want to, but you have to fight for this truth to sink into your soul. You have to cultivate a taste for God's goodness. In Jeremiah 29, there's some promises that the prophet offers his people when it comes to chasing after God. In in Jeremiah 29, verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come to me and pray, and I will hear you. Now listen to this. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. God's not playing hide and seek with his kids. Come, come, chase after me. I'll, I'll be found by you. Cultivate this, this 
God is better perspective. Come close. Cultivate a taste for my goodness. In fact, David, who we studied this morning in Psalm 34, says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Just try it. The only reason you ever doubt that he's better than whatever it is you're wrestling with is because you spent so much time cultivating the opposite. You spent time worrying and stressing and buying and hiding and keeping all those things you think are equal to your happiness. And God says, just get out of there. Come over here and taste and see how better I am than that. Hang out here. And he promises to come close to those who chase after him. It's, it's, it's right there in the scriptures. One last thing, what to do. Don't rely on the flood. Dig a well. Don't rely on a flood, dig a well. Sometimes, you know, in our spiritual journey, this is way easier to respond to. Like the day I put my faith and trust in Christ when I was overwhelmed with my sin to such a huge degree that the reality of God was greater than any other reality. Remember that? You remember when he was so big, when worship was so amazing, when that sermon touched exactly your story and you think God was telling somebody? You know that huge flood moment? Those worship services where you just think God is so close to you and you can't believe it. Well, sometimes we go, I'm just waiting around for that. All I want is those flood moments. Just God do something extra measure all the time. And the reality is that we have to spend time getting to know him, letting our well go deep so that when these idols present themselves as some kind of joy or satisfaction or happiness that they can't deliver on, then what I know trumps what I feel. I love it when God shows up and does extra measure. I've been praying for 25 years that God would bring revival somewhere in my life, not just me personally, but in a people. If he does, he does. If he doesn't, I know this, that I will get to know him, God willing, and he will be better. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the truth. Um, of your greatness and goodness to us. There isn't anything that keeps up. Nothing can compete with you. You're awesome. You are mighty. You're merciful. You're gracious. You are kind. You are forgiving. You are sympathetic. You are everything to us. God, we confess our low desires. We confess our idle factory hearts and ask that you be great in our lives, we pray. Amen.